Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful story of our Savior and for the promise we have of his return. Until then, Lord, we are to remember his death and to meet together at his table. And we pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts for that now as we look at the testimony of your word. Lord, open our hearts to your truth. Feed us out of your word. And Lord, uh, nourish us as your people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the privilege and honor of coming to the Lord's table this morning. It's easy to become casual in our attitude towards the freedom we have been granted in the Lord Jesus Christ to gather and to remember his death for our sins. We get to do it frequently. It's easy to take it for granted because we do it with such liberty. The elements in the liturgy of the communion service are very simple, and uh, that can lead to a certain disregard of the privilege itself. The simplicity of the elements before us this morning and the service by which we take them do not translate into a simplistic view of the Lord's Supper itself. The elements represent the most blessed sacrifice ever made. The supper is a monument to God's love for his elect, his love for you and for me. It's a reminder of how deeply sin lies in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. It can't be removed by anything else but the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. It challenges us with the reality that unless we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, we have no life in us. That's the testimony of Jesus himself in John chapter 6 and verse 53. Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the privilege that we are picturing or um, enjoying here as we come together to the Lord's table. This is a meal for believers, those who know that Jesus died for them and gave his life as a ransom for their sins. It's not just for anyone. And not only is this meal not open to just anyone, but only to those who come with faith in the fact that Jesus died for them on the cross. But it's not safe to eat it if you do not believe, if you do not have saving faith in Christ. In such a case, eating here does you more harm than it does good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 29 Paul warns, saying, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself or to himself. If that's the case with you this morning, that reality ought to make you anxious to find at the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ that faith which will allow you to join us and to discover that deeper reality of what is going on here. 
when believers receive not just a little piece of bread and a, and a, a tiny cup of, a, 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 of the blood of the grape, but have sweet communion with their Redeemer as they eat and drink in and by faith, remembering his death until he does come again. This is all about faith. Having free and legitimate access to this table also means that an individual is privileged in other ways as well. But the privileges come with faith. It's a privilege that has nothing to do with anyone's color or with his or her race or his or her gender or status in the world, their education or their wealth. It's all about faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about whether one is a born-again Christian who has been justified by faith and washed in the blood of the Lamb or not. For those who have been, it's open, it's free, it's here for all. For those who have not, this is the time to consider the message of the gospel and the call to turn to Christ. To put your faith in his redeeming work on the cross of Calvary to come forward and to take part in this meal, which signifies, shows forth his death until he comes. These are the ones who are being justified, that is, who having been cleared of the debt and the guilt of their sin by Christ's death on the cross, have other privileges and promises. They have his promise that God having justified them, he will also sanctify them. So if you have that promise in your heart this morning that Christ has justified you by your faith, then you may also trust that he will sanctify you. That is, render you who believe more holy and more Christ-like in your thinking and in your speaking and in your acting. And this work of sanctification is carried out in many different ways in the children of God by the Lord. Among the tools by which God carries on this promised work is discipline. Disciplining every son and daughter that he receives and loves. Being loved by God to the point where one is made a child of God by faith means that one will be loved with discipline as well. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives, whom he welcomes, who he brings to himself. Now with all that in mind, we come to verse 9 of Hebrews 12. And that's where we begin reading. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, 
I want to focus, ask you to focus with me on three things that are set forth here in this passage that we've just read. The first of them is a question. Having submitted to the discipline of earthly fathers, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Why one and not the other is sort of the question. It would be foolish to respect and obey and honor men who have been our correctors under God and then not be subject to God himself. The point of the passage seems clearly to be that having submitted to the discipline of earthly fathers and respected those who gave us our earthly bodies and were only temporarily over us, all according to the providence of God, therefore, it's only logical and proper that we should even submit more willingly and and respect more highly the one who made us a living spirit and thereby live. Now, when we think about that idea, that concept, it's not meant to teach us that God did not give us our bodies, but that he employed our parents in that work. Ultimately, however, it is as David says in Psalm 139, Verse 19, you, Lord, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. But he used our parents to do that. But parents cannot give the spirit of life. And that's why at death, as Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, dust returns to the earth where it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So the question is, should we not much more, that is, with more patience, with more humility, with more meekness, be in subjection to God, who gave us our life, and who gives us new life in Christ, when, we faith, when he faithfully and lovingly corrects or disciplines us? Shouldn't we be ready to have more patience, to exercise more humility, to show more meekness, when we're corrected by him than we ever did when we were corrected by our earthly parents. Is it not true that simple and absolute subjection is to be yielded to him, that is, to the Lord? It's also true that this is the surest and the sweetest way of gaining all the fruit and gleaning all the comfort that we can from his faithful discipline. That is, by humble subjection to it as from a father's hand. We want to profit from the discipline. The surest way of profiting is by submission. If we want to glean all the fruit, all the advantage of it, the surest way to do that is by humble subjection under that discipline and receiving it as from a father's hand. In Psalm 119 and verse 71, David said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In other words, it's good for me that I've been afflicted because that affliction has taught me your word, your statutes, your law. And I've, I've learned from that. I've profited from that by submitting 
to that discipline, that affliction. In Psalm 94 and verse 19, it says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. The cheer of the soul comes with the consolation that is a result of the many heavy cares of the heart. The discipline of the heart. That's when the consolations come in and that's when the heart is cheered. And then in Psalm 22, verses 24 through 26, we read, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May our hearts live forever. Here's the promise. The Lord will not ignore the afflicted in their affliction, but will hear them when they cry, and then he will bless them, and they will profit from that affliction because of their relationship with the Lord in it. But it says here that shouldn't we submit to this and then live? live. And why does it say, and live? Well, as the fatherly discipline of God is evidence of his loving adoption of us as sons and daughters, our subjection to him in that discipline is our evidence of love for him as true sons and daughters. In other words, he disciplines us like a faithful father because he's made us his children. And our response demonstrates the fact that that's true. We are his children because we submit to it, like we would submit to the discipline of our fathers. Sometimes when other fathers try to discipline people's children, uh, the children, other people's children, the children balk at that because you're not my father, you're not my mother, you don't get to tell me what to do, only my father gets to do that. And to him, I'll respond, but I'm not going to respond to you. You're not my father. And that reaction shows that there's not a relationship there, that father-son or father-daughter relationship. But when we submit to the discipline of the Lord, and we do it in subjection to his will and his purposes, and do it with love, we demonstrate that he is our father. And we do recognize that relationship, and he does have the right to correct us and to encourage us by discipline. The man or woman who finds him or herself pinched under the discipline of God should not only be looking for evidence of his loving care in that discipline, but you should also be looking for evidence of your loving submission to that discipline. It's a two-sided thing. You shouldn't only be looking for and praying for, Lord, please help me to see your hand in this. Help me to know how much you love me. How much, help me to know, Lord, you care for me. Help me, Lord, to know that you're hearing my prayers. And those are the things that people pray for when they're under the Lord's discipline, when they're under trial. Lord, help me to find you. Help me to know you love me. Help me to know you care for me. But we should be praying, too, for, and Lord, let me see my care for you. And my love for you as I'm under this thing so that I respond to it in a godly way and, and like a child of the Lord and, and like a child who knows 
that he's being disciplined by a father who loves him. Perhaps you could think of it in this way. All men are disciplined by God, either in judgment or in sanctifying love. But it's the adopted sons and daughters who lovingly submit to it because they know and believe it's from their loving Heavenly Father. Beloved, it's better to have our calling and election and thereby our hope of eternal life made sure by divine discipline than to run, a, run bound by Satan into hell under the illusion of being free from God's hand and from his judgment. Secondly, the second thing to note here in this passage is the fact that he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And here again we see that the children of God, by faith, are blessed with another great privilege. As his adopted sons and daughters, one of the good things for which he disciplines you is so that you might be a partaker of his holiness, or that holiness which comes from him, from Christ, and is the work of his spirit by the word in the hearts of his people. Guj says this holiness is worked in us by discipline because there's nothing like affliction to bring us to see, for one thing, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. There's nothing like affliction, nothing like God's discipline, that helps us to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And seeing that, we're led into holiness because we see its, its ugliness. We see the horror of it, and we turn from it. When we see what an evil thing it is, we're brought to confession and repentance and thereby to a greater sense or spirit of holiness. Most men and women struggle to mortify sin. It's a struggle for us. One of the great helps which God provides for his children in that cause is his faithful sincere and loving discipline we have a hard time killing it sin in ourselves but boy discipline really helps the discipline of the lord really brings us along towards that end it has weaned more of his children from their sins than most anything else the discipline the pinch the correction that he brings when we're tempted and when we fall. Disciplining affliction is a great revealer of the heart. The more trying the issue, the more that's revealed about the professing believer, about the person who claims to be a Christian. The more they're pressed, the more is revealed about us. The child of God is forced under the hand of his discipline to dig deeper and deeper into the provisions of grace and faith and to find out the depths of them and the height and the breadth of them by discipline. When we feel ourselves suffering under some trial from the Lord and we feel the pain of it and we feel the sorrow of it and we feel the hurt of it, 
we're forced to dig deeper and deeper into our faith and the reality of our faith and where we really stand in relationship to God. It's a great revealer of the heart. Often under the discipline of the Lord, we come to the point where there are no more words. There's just nothing more we can say. We don't know what to say. It's just us and God's promise unfolding a sense of love and comfort deep within the soul. And that's all there is. There's nothing else to it. But that is everything. That's the evidence of it. That's the reality of it. The comfort and consolation of the Lord. So the discipline drives us down to that point where all we can do is lay our hand upon our mouth. And this is where I just have to trust the Lord because there's nothing else that I can look to. There's nothing else that I can hope for except for his promise to me in the midst of this trial. And we put our, our trust there. We, we sink our anchor there. And the Spirit of God brings us those comforts. He brings us that rest, that peace to the soul. And that's where we find the depth of the faith and the grace that we enjoy in him. For others whose profession of Christ has been nothing more but words. Under the discipline of the Lord, it is soon demonstrated that their faith had no root. And the deeper and longer the discipline, the more abandoned all pretense and protest uh, is. That is, all pretense against the Lord and all protest uh, is. It becomes a, a rebellion against the hand of God in one way or another. And it manifests itself in different ways. Sometimes with just outright rebellion against the Lord. Rejection of him and his word. Abandonment of the house of God. Uh, neglect of the, of the word of God. They're all set aside and it shows there's no depth. There's no, there's no heart in that faith that was professed. This very epistle... In chapter 10, in verses 35 and 36, says this, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. When you have trusted in the Lord, in the midst of that discipline, in the midst of that trial, you may have confidence, confidence, and receive what is promised. But not all discipline is related directly to some specific sin. Bodily affliction has a wonderful way of causing us to seek spiritual refreshment. You see that in the Apostle Paul. When he was denied relief from his infamous thorn in the flesh, he was told he was not going to be relieved of that burden, that discipline. And Paul immediately made profit out of it for his heart and his soul. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he talks about it. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's it, Paul. I'm not taking this discipline away from you. I'm not relieving you of this burden. You're going to have to continue to labor under it and put your trust in my grace. 
And Paul's immediate response is, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For the profit of my soul, I'm willing to endure this and any other weakness that the Lord, any other trial, any other discipline, God may deem good for me. There's a blessed design in all the believer's trials and testing, discipline and correction. It is a lift. It is to pull us up to partake of the holiness that Jesus died to bring to us. To wean us from worldliness and acclimate us to heavenly mindedness. John Owen says, Holiness consists in the mortification of our lusts and affections, in the gradual renovation of our natures and the sanctification of our souls. The carrying on and increase of these things in us is that which God designs in all his chastisements. As Owen further observes, this beloved is next to our redemption in Christ and the imputation of his righteousness, the greatest privilege, glory, honor, and benefit that we can have a right to and enjoy at his hand. This promise of discipline that brings us to a participation in his holiness. Thirdly, the third passage here is that this discipline yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I can look back on my father's discipline of me and I can see profit in it now. Um, But I can assure you that at the time, it was not pleasant. Um, It was never really a pleasant experience. It tended to be painful and humiliating, but that was by design. So it is with every chastening. It doesn't at the time give joy, but it seems painful and it's grieving. While we're feeling the rod of correction under its stroke, so to speak, before the comfort of the Spirit is added, it naturally produces a sense of sadness because it's meant to do so. It is intended to do so. It is intended to be a bitter, not a sweet thing. The Holy Spirit makes it clear here that we are not necessarily expected to look on the godly discipline of any hour and find it a pleasant thing as we endure it. That is, find it something enjoyable. Oh, the Lord has his lash on my back, and oh, I'm so glad that feels so good. That's not what what is intended at all. Instead, it often works sorrow or real sadness as it's applied by him. 
Paul uses the same term in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's talking about godly grief, godly sorrow. And no discipline for the moment is joyful. It brings sorrow. It brings godly grief. And the Lord knows this. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, we read this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, that is their grief, who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, their grievings. And yet he's the one who told them that he sent them into this with a purpose. If anyone under the hand of God is determined to be unaffected by some trial that God has designed for that very purpose, I want to assure you it's a fight you can't win. So if God is disciplining you and you say, well, I'm just going to be stoic under this discipline of the Lord and I'm not going to be humbled and I'm not going to be brought to sorrow and I'm not going to be broken, you're fighting a fight you can't win. That discipline, because he loves you, is going to bring you to that brokenness at some point and in some way. As John Owen says, he, God, will not cease till he has broken the fierceness and tamed the pride of our spirits and have brought us like obedient children to submit ourselves under his mighty hand. The discipline of God will crush all pretense in the unbeliever. But in his own, it's like the apple press that squeezes the sweet juice from the pulp. It's not said that it will yield the peaceable fruit, but that it does yield it in the heart and the life of the Christian. Not that it will, it does. That's what it does. That's its purpose. And so the screws are tightened to bring forth this peaceable fruit. And notice that it's not righteousness which is produced by these trials. It doesn't produce righteousness in us. That comes from Christ. But what is produced is the fruit of that righteousness which we have from Christ. The righteousness that's produced because, I mean the fruit that is produced because we are righteous in him. What comes out of having been made righteous in him? The discipline of the Lord does not render anyone more fit in his sight. But it does increase the fruit of righteousness that we found in Christ. It works sanctification. That is the increase of our holiness in thought, in word, and in deed. To the glory of God and to the peace of our own hearts. Faith grows under trial, under discipline. Faith grows for the believer, for the child of God, for the one who is adopted son or daughter of the Lord. Under discipline, faith grows. It becomes our relationship with him in prayer becomes more intimate and personal. I've seen people who, uh, in their 
normal prayer life without being under any particular trial or difficulty. Are very almost um, robotic in their prayers. They pray what they always pray for. They pray what they know to pray for. And then they fall under some trial. And it's completely different. They're weeping before the Lord. They're broken before the Lord. They're talking to him like a son or a daughter would talk to their father or their mother when they were being disciplined. And there's an intimacy and a closeness that blossoms and develops under it. Sin is set aside. And the tendency is to feed more on the word of God and to profit more from it. People who have never commented on anything they've ever read in the Bible under trials will come and say, oh, you'll never guess what I saw. I I was reading in my Bible and I saw this verse and I saw this application to me. And suddenly the Bible's open to them in a way that they never realized before. But it's because of the trial they're under and the things they're enduring. We throw ourselves more on the Lord and all of his and all of his grace towards us. We stop leaning on the things that that are part of this world, and we lean more on him and his goodness to us. And all of that quiets the heart. It eases the turmoil of the soul, and it produces us in us a peace that the circumstances would appear to be working against. And yet because of who and what we are in Christ, it has the opposite impact. Rather than the turmoil making us more fearful and, and, and causing more turmoil, it brings peace to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 3-4, through 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We find that comfort, and then we share that comfort with others. Now, this is the promise to all those who are trained or exercised by God's discipline. There are, of course, different levels of exercise. There's, you know, the exercise that uh, comes from just stretching a little bit and so on. That's not the exercise alluded to here. This is an exercise that involves diligence and intensity. It would have formed a word picture uh, to the first readers of a person stripping him or herself of anything that would prevent them from winning and who were putting their whole strength into gaining victory. That kind of struggle. So you think about that in any game you've ever played where you set aside everything that might slow you down or might distract you and you put everything you have into winning and getting the victory. That's the kind of exercising that's involved here. So those who can put aside everything else and let that discipline work its work in them, they are the ones who gain this victory and blessing 
and who bring forth this fruit. Owen says, wherefore, to be exercised by chastisement is to have all our spiritual strength, all our faith and patience tried to the utmost and acted in all things suitably to the mind of God. So it was with Job. Now we're going to come here together to the Lord's table and take part in these elements. We call it communion because it relates to our communion with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it communion because it marks our communion with him as our Redeemer and as our Savior. We call it communion because it marks our relationship together by faith. We all believe that Jesus died for us and that we're sinners saved by grace and brothers and sisters under the blood of the Lamb. But it also relates to our mutual communion, beloved, in discipline. If we are all children, then we are all either being or will soon be feeling the pinch of our loving Heavenly Father's discipline in some way. Because he disciplines every son whom he loves. And every son or daughter who he receives. Let's remember one another in our trials and in our testing. Let's remember our brothers and sisters in their trials and in their testing. Let's have compassion on one another. Let us pray for one another earnestly and faithfully. Some of our brothers and sisters are being tried in different ways right now that are quite serious. And they need your prayers. They need your compassion. They need your love. Just as you need theirs in the time of your testing and your trial. And let us, as Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Saying to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. If you're his child, under his discipline, he will come. He will come. And that discipline will produce all of this glorious fruit that's the privilege privilege of the believer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us and for what you have done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, though it's true, no chastening for the moment seems pleasant. It doesn't produce joy but sorrow. We are thankful that it produces such peaceable fruit. And Lord, we pray that that fruit may be found in those of our number who are under specific trials right now. Lord, those who are being tested, tested in their faith and their trust in you. Oh Lord, may they bring forth precious fruit. And may we hold them up before the throne of grace. And Lord, we thank you that uh, this table marks our communion with you. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, our communion with one another, and Lord, our communion 
in suffering discipline at your hand, but also, Lord, our communion in bearing fruit together. Father, receive us now as your people and bless us as only you can. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.